Again, Mark 7, 24 through 30. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter was tormented by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, First let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is God's word. So Jesus here goes beyond the borders of his assigned mission. And I say assigned because even Jesus apparently got assignments. Uh, In another of Jesus' biographies, his friend Matthew retells the same incident. He observes the same incident with the same woman, and he recalls Jesus saying, quote, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Good news to Jews. That's my assignment, Jesus is essentially saying. So why then do we find Jesus 30 miles, far more than a day's journey, 30 miles to the northwest of Jewish territory? couple days away. Why go so far beyond the borders of his mission? Answering that question is going to do a few things, but it's, also, it's going to help us review a little bit here. In Mark's biography of Jesus' life, he focuses on how three groups, three different groups, respond to the person of Jesus. There's the already religious, the supposed insiders who are actually on the outside. These are the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. And their question of Jesus is, can we accept him? Can we accept him? From the moment he heals a paralytic to the, to the calling of Levi, to asking why his disciples don't follow the traditional rules of, of Sabbath keeping and, and, and rituals and, and giving, they have this fact-finding mission around the question, can we accept him? There's also the supposed outsiders who become insiders. And their question is, will you, Jesus, accept us? Will you accept us? And these will be the people that Jesus calls family. Not necessarily those he grew up with. Not necessarily those who are in the closest proximity to him. They are tax collectors. They are a bleeding woman. They are the executive sort of pastor of a temple. They are a demon-harassed man, all of whom come to Jesus eager and desperate and desirous, recognizing him as their only hope, asking that question, will you accept me? Will you accept me? Well, these two groups converge. They're converging more and more in this story in Mark's gospel. While the 12 apostles kind of witness their, their different responses to Jesus, and they're caught in the middle. They're following Jesus, physically following him, right? But they don't really yet get him. 
Jesus shares these hard-to-understand parables about the kingdom that he has to privately explain to them later because they don't yet get what he's saying. They almost get Jesus after he wakes up from a nap and calms a storm. And then after they get to participate on his uh, kingdom team. But then they proceed to miss him after he feeds 5,000 people and walks on water. They don't really get him then. You see, guys, the, the 12, they're near physically, proximally near to Jesus, but they don't yet get him. Their question is basically, well, wait, 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 who are you again, <laughs> Jesus? We still don't get it. We said this in this section of Mark's gospel that we're in now. Jesus is keenly focused on the 12, his team of 12, these messengers that he wants to send out on his behalf. And last week we saw that the religious leaders are trying to kind of pull them back. They're making their strongest case yet that you can actually love God and be a pretty good person if you just follow a set of rules in life and you're consistent about following those rules. So I think Jesus goes so far beyond the borders of his mission here because he wants to make his case to the 12, his strongest case yet, of how an outsider becomes an insider. So he literally wants to take them outside and show them that the only thing that really matters is a, a humble, trust-filled response to himself. So he gets them outside their, their culture of, of rule-following, of, of self-righteousness that results from rule-following, and even outside the culture of religion itself. And, and because the 12 feel this strong pull towards rule-following, towards the self-righteous, whom the crowds really seem to respect and respond to, that Jesus strongly pulls back. And does he ever do that, right? I love this account of the Syrophoenician woman, right? What, what we are going to think about for the next 20 minutes, you know, hours of meditation and study have been put into this week. And behind that, there's been centuries of scholarship and thousands of sermons that have been written about this. She gets all of it in 20 seconds. For all of that stuff, all the study, all the books have been written about this, all the, all the work I put into this week, she gets it in 20 seconds. Pretty amazing. During that time, during those 20 seconds, she had to go from desperation about her daughter to silence to then a stinging rejection that contained a, a, a riddling insult about dogs. And in these, I was thinking this week about what that must have been like in that moment. Like what that must have felt like. Consider, if you will, going to your doctor, all right, to your physician. You sit down. And you talk to your doctor about someone you love and whether, whether she can be helped by a physician helping your sick little girl. And you go from saying that through tears and the doctor listening to him saying, I can't really help. But he doesn't just tell you you can't really help. He tells you some sort of like wisecracking joke that sounds a little bit like Robert Downey Jr. trying to be your doctor, right? Kind of, it's kind of sly and sarcastic. And no one wants to hear bad news with a wink and a smile, right? That would be, even the most timid among us would then immediately go down and file a complaint with Kaiser, right, about this doctor. Like, what a cruel person this is, almost toying with me. When this confusing, short, potentially offensive moment, this woman rightly understands the riddle and becomes the only person in recorded history who 
answers a parable of Jesus from within. The only person who ever completes Jesus' sentence, as it were. So how does she, who's never met Jesus before, how does she so get Jesus? It is her dogged belief. And yes, I'm using a canine pun here, given the dogs in the passage, all right? This is the time and the place to use puns, guys, is at church. Uh, her, her, her dogged belief in the goodness of Jesus, it frees her. It frees her to forget herself and gladly receive whatever scraps he has to give her. And ultimately, she gets to see the goodness of Jesus displayed in her life through the healing of her daughter. Contrast this, if you would, to the 12. These 12 guys who are, who are following Jesus all the time, physically with him. Just a couple weeks ago, we saw they were promised rest. And instead, they got rest they felt like they deserve, and instead they got fish and bread. They felt they deserved more than breadcrumbs, more than bread, you know, more than the scraps that Jesus gave them. And so we're told in Mark's gospel, they did not understand. Their hearts were hardened. They did not understand about the loaves. They did not understand about the bread. But this woman did. She got, got it about the bread. And that is no small deal. I want us to think about, let's think about just two major obstacles that her dogged belief had to overcome. Two obstacles that had to be overcome with her belief. One was silence. Now, I mentioned this is Mark's gospel. From Matthew's perspective, on the same event, the woman begs Jesus in the same way, but we're told Jesus first did not answer her a word. He did not answer her a word. From her perspective, you can imagine, man, he's just like everyone else. People used to show up to help her daughter, right? Concerned neighbors would drop by the house to offer food. A pagan priestess would come and offer prayers. A local physician might come by and provide a homemade remedy for what was wrong. And over time, people just stopped coming by because, that, because her daughter was never healed. And you can imagine her saying, man, people would walk by my house and nobody would come in. They treated me like I was invisible, like I wasn't even there anymore. And Jesus has heard my voice begging, my begging, but he really is just like everyone else, only more cruel because he announces people like me aren't his priority. And many of us here are, I know, sadly familiar with the, with the pain at the silence of God, even as we beg for his help. So sometimes our response is to shut up and sort of close up. Instead, this woman, she antes up. She thinks he must then have something better, so I better persist. I better keep asking. She overcomes. She overcomes. Another, another obstacle she has to overcome is her own pride. And you can imagine this moment. Even if you don't know anything about this passage, man, this hit, that, that, that must have hit her pride. But let me tell you a little bit something else about why this would have been so stinging for her. Mark tells us this is a woman who is a Syrophoenician by birth. In other words, she's, from this, uh, she's a local to the region of a place called Tyre. Now, not too long ago, I happened to be reading about this place, Tyre. It was in my uh, morning Bible reading a few weeks ago. I was going through the Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel, and Tyre shows up in the writings. And as God was describing this nation, I just wrote in all caps in my journal, 
America at the top. America. Big caps. This was a nation of great skill, a nation of of entrepreneurship, a nation of, of trade and of wealth, but trade with every nation to the point where, where their economy would impact the, uh, the economies of, of nations all around them. And Ty- Tyre was so wealthy, they bought massive supplies of wheat, a grain, of bread that was grown in the Jewish territory of Galilee. And they stored up much of it, even during periods when Galilee went hungry because of drought or famine or other things, and they kept the bread for themselves. That context may help explain why Jesus shares the many parable about children's bread, right? Why does he pick bread to share? Well, he's, 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 trying to, he's trying to hit her with something. And she responds about children's crumbs. She's a product of an, of an entitled nation because of their wealth. And you add to it, Jesus specifically going after bread. Ooh, that would hit her hard. I know what you're talking about. You're a Jew coming to Tyre, and you're talking about bread. Mm. It was certainly a jab at her, at her national pride. And then to compare her to a dog eating scraps of bread underneath the table would have been another jab. What is Jesus doing by, by, by saying this? He's trying to bait her, but in a good way. Not to knock her down a peg, but to see if she'll humbly take herself down a peg. If she's willing to take her, it's a way of asking, do you believe to the point of humbling yourself? To saying, you know what, Jesus? That's okay. I still want you. I still want what you have to give me. I'm humbly coming toward you. Because wealthy people, like us, by the way, if you drove here this morning, you had a roof over your head last night, you were very wealthy compared to the rest of the world. We often have a hard time seeing our need for God. Wealth makes us feel entitled, right? Like to more than scraps. But her dogged belief in the goodness of Jesus helps her respond, you know what? No, no, no. I'll even take the scraps. I'll be the dog underneath the table who eats the children's scraps that they feed, right? Or that fall to the floor. Notice in that moment, it's a wonderful issue. She forgets her sense of tire, Tyrrhenian national pride. She forgets her sense of dignity even. She, she forgets her, 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 even her daughter for a moment, she sees only Jesus' lavish goodness and completes his sentence for him. I was thinking this week of how, how to capture this for us today in, in a way that we can feel. To, to capture this sort of humble, self-forgetful belief she displays. And I remember a song I heard a long time ago. Um, it was by this humble, obscure artist named Mitch McVicker. And the song is called Anything. And the song is, I'm going to play it for you here. The song is so obscure that I could not find the lyrics for it online. And that's when you know something's obscure, because you can find anything, almost anywhere. So I couldn't find the lyrics online, so I had to type it out and create a music video myself. All right, so there's nothing fancy in this video. <laughs> so be prepared to lower the bar. But let's, let's hear this song. And, and, and I think it captures the sense of what we're hearing from this woman in the passage. scraps that fall to the floor cause all the meals I fix for myself leave me wanting more 
And I go through phases And trends just don't last long Oh, but the bread of life lasts forever So I'd like some Yeah, here's my soul, do with it what you want Cause I don't even know what I need But I know there's so much more than I have ever thought of So I'd be happy with anything Blessings are being handed out Then I'll take the scraps Yeah, here's my soul Do with it what you want Cause I don't even know what I need But I know there's so much more Than I have ever thought of So I'd be happy with anything Even as a preacher who gets, earns his wages, if you will, through preaching, even I'm big enough to admit that sometimes a song can capture what a sermon cannot, all right? And I just think that is a perfect, because why? Right, a song kind of engages the emotions of the heart that can help us change, right? It can help us see something we haven't seen before. And this song, I think, taps into that humble joy of this woman, that the spirit of what she said, which is, yes, Lord, eat. But even the dogs under the table, they eat the kids' scraps. And I'll take that. I love it. If blessings are being handed out, I'll take the scraps. Here's my soul. Lord, do it with it what you want. I don't even know what I need, but I know there's so much more that I've never thought of. I'll be happy with anything. And so our message in a nutshell is this. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Get your heart happy for scraps. <laughs> Get your heart to a place where it's happy for scraps, the Lord's scraps in your life. And so the question then becomes, how do I do that, right? How do I get my heart to a place where I'm, I'm content, even happy and joyful when I get something from God, even though it's not the one thing that I wanted most? How do we get our hearts humble to the point where we're happy for scraps? A couple suggestions. Insist on your beggar status. Insist on your beggar status. When we share the good news about Jesus, some people have, have explained what it's like to share the good news as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. One, I love that description. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The problem is, the longer we walk with Jesus, and some of you know this feeling, we kind of prefer being ex-beggars, right? <laughs> After a while, you're like, no, I got this, God. I'm good now. Like, life is good. I know how to run things. I, I, got, I, got, I know what's going on. We don't want to put our hands out any longer, and that becomes a problem. In verse 27, Jesus says, first let the children eat all they want. So that phrase, eat all they want, was the same phrase used in the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus provided bread, and the 12 felt they deserved peace and quiet instead. They didn't want the breadcrumbs, and so again, Mark tells us their hearts were hardened, for they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't understand the bread, that just take what Jesus gives you, because you know it's going to be good. 
They can't see how Jesus has been good to them. And so they start to, to drift towards that self-righteousness expressed by the religious leaders. Like, no, God, I got this. I get it. I don't need you anymore. And this woman, instead, she says, who cares about dignity? Who cares about my pride? Jesus, you are so good. I'll take whatever you want to give me. I'll take the scraps. Uh, this past week, I was feeling really pretty down, uh, just feeling melancholy, uh, even depressed. And I don't use that word lightly. I don't want to minimize clinical depression and the neurobiological aspects behind that. But I was feeling down, just that sense I wasn't looking forward to much, uh, not very hopeful. And I was feeling kind of just lonely, even with other people around. And by the way, I know I'm not the only one who feels that way. Uh, there is a loneliness epidemic, particularly among men in America. And just in the last two decades, the percentage of men who cite having six or more close friends has dropped by 30%, close to 30% in the last decade. And just in the last two years, it's dropped by an additional 12%. So I know others of you out there feel that. Us men don't often know how to verbalize it, <laughs> but it's there. And when you see someone who may, you, you know, you get the sense they might be kind of down, going through depression or just feeling melancholy. The tendency is to stay away from anything bad. To only talk about good stuff. Even, even when there's a reason why uh, cognitive behavior therapists say, hey, look, write down, journal your anxieties. Talk about your shortcomings. Write them down. Look at them. Because no matter how much sunshine you pump into a person's life, those things will continue to whisper at you from the background if you don't stare at them straight in the face. But if you stare straight at your shortcomings, if you can confess them honestly, you stand a chance. And because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that as we are honest about those things, there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness through Jesus because of what he's done for us. But if you can't be honest about your shortcomings, about sin, well, forgiveness just becomes a sunshine pumping slogan that we throw out there, we put on posters and on bumper stickers, right? It's only when we're humbled by sin that scraps start to look like delicacies. <laughs> only when you're humble and be real about your own shortcomings do the scraps start to look like steak, right? And I can say that this week because as I, as I just found myself, as I began to sort of talk to God more honestly and more specifically about the sin and shortcomings in my life versus just generally feeling bad about myself and my shortcomings, I came face to face with the forgiveness of Jesus. Thank you. I, I sensed him sort of welcoming me and, and the Spirit sort of reminded me, yes, this is what it's like to be real with God. And, and then everything that he began after that to sort of bring my way, every, every encounter I had, uh, every, every smile, every little scrap became like a delicacy to me. He may not make you wealthy in the way that you want, but he may make you happy with laughter. He may not heal you of your pain, but he may make you happy with the person who walks with you through that pain. And friends, I can tell you, I feel like a beggar again, ha just happy for scraps. <laughs> Another suggestion to get your heart to a place where it's happy with scraps, is to remind fellow beggars of the goodness of God. 
remind fellow beggars of the goodness of God. We need it. And I don't mean that generally religious talk of God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. That kind of general God is good stuff. I mean be real about it. Like, man, God is good in my life because he provided in this way. I just never thought he would. Or he helped me with this in a way that I didn't see coming. You may have heard of a, a book called The Hiding Place by a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Um, it's an autobiography about a woman in the Netherlands uh, who hid Jews during World War II. Eventually, she and her family get caught, and she gets sent to a concentration camp. She, gets, she and her sister get transported from the Netherlands to the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp. Now, she finds a cot there that she shares with two other people. And this cot, and all the cots in the barracks are infested with fleas. Corey's sister, Betsy, though, she sees the goodness of God in every scrap of life. And so she insists every evening that they're going to give thanks to God for the fleas. Quote, for they too are God's grace. Well, Corey refuses. She's like, I am not going to God with, about fleas. <laughs> all right, there's like a line, I'm not going over that line. Well, it's interesting. Every night they hold services. Every night they have Bible studies. They read the Bible and they get to share the good news of Jesus with other women in the barracks. And no one ever bothers them about it. Even though in those times, right, they're trying to get rid of Christianity from the state, right? They don't even, or don't even talk about religion. But no one bothers them. Well, later, Corey overhears three guards talk about why they never went into those barracks. Quote, that place was littered with fleas. We would never go in there. And she immediately recalls the words that sprung from her sister's beggar belief in the goodness of God. Thank you, God, for the fleas, for they too are God's grace. She's got her heart happy with scraps. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love and the way you express your love supreme Christ. And so throughout life, um, you give us these blessings. Father, forgive us for getting our hearts being in a place sometimes where they're entitled. And that so easily can happen in a place we live in like America where there's so much wealth and, and there's so much security, there's so much we have. It's hard to admit our beggar status. But wow does our heart get happy when we're happy with scraps, when we forget ourselves and we remember that we are nothing without you, Jesus, and we have nothing without you. So I pray this morning for all my friends here that we would get to our heart in that place, that we would insist on being a beggar, nothing more, but also nothing less, that we're your beggar, receiving your salvation, receiving your goodness over and over again. Help us remind one another, be a church that reminds one another about every blessing you bring our way to remind one another of the goodness of God, no matter how big or how small. We're grateful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.